الجزيرة بودكاست It's been a busy few days in the Holy Land since Israel got a new right-wing government. From messing with the status of courts to testing the status of a Luxor Mosque compound, the government seems to be wasting no time in poking sensitive issues. Hello everyone and welcome to Essential Middle East Podcast. I'm Sami Zaydan. After two months of intensive negotiations, Netanyahu assembled Israel's most far-right, ultra-nationalist government ever. Now, Israel's far-right Minister of Security kicked off international condemnation by entering Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. Then, a few days later, thousands of Israelis came out to protest a proposal to give MPs power over the courts. Let's get into it then with our guest. Hello, Daniel Levy here. I'm the president of the US Middle East Project, and I'm joining you today from North London. Wonderful. Always good to chat with you, Daniel. Let's start with the latest series of controversies since this government came to power. We saw thousands of people protest in Tel Aviv over the Minister of Justice's proposed reforms. Why are so many people so worried? Well, I think there are different things feeding into this. First of all, the sense that the existing checks and balances in the Israeli system that at least deliver for the majority of the Israeli Jewish population. I do want to draw that distinction. They clearly do not deliver for the Palestinians under the permanent occupation of Israel in the occupied territories. They don't deliver equality or an addressing of structural discrimination for the 20% of the Israeli citizens who are Palestinian. But certainly for the Israeli Jewish community, this could represent a significant change. That's what brought some people out. Other people came out in the context of, yes, a shared struggle for equality. The last thing, I just a slight note of caution. Yup, first time under the new government, demonstrators are out there, but the demonstrators were in the single-digit thousands. This is not a mass protest. Right, but we're seeing, even within the Israeli camp, there is some concern, I think it's safe to say, about having a system where if you get a majority of members of parliament, the Knesset, then the Knesset becomes over the courts, right? Exactly. The element you're highlighting, Sami, is the reform to the judicial system. What you have had in Israel is a Supreme Court with a degree of independence from the political class that has the ability to conduct judicial review of legislation passed by the parliament. It's a parliamentary democracy, so to speak. And you have the court system alongside that. The reforms that are being proposed would make it very easy for a simple parliamentary majority of 61 out of 120 to overturn a court decision which in itself would challenge any legislation passed by the Israeli parliament. And there's groups which are not happy about this, Daniel, right? There's the black flag movement calling for countermeasures. Are we going to see this escalate into civil disobedience campaigns? How far is this going to go? I think that's an open question at this stage. These are the same movements, largely, that have Netanyahu 
when he has previously been in office. I think they would see this as a more dramatic moment of contestation around the Israeli system. The mainstream Jewish-Israeli challenge is you are undermining the Jewish democratic state. The step back I'm taking is whether indeed a Jewish democracy has delivered democracy that does not distinguish between Jewish and non-Jewish citizens. There's a serious consideration to be given there, and I would argue that no, it has not delivered discrimination-free democracy. But to the extent to which you have a significant community that believes this was delivering justice, equality before the law, certainly for the Jewish citizens, that is now being challenged. And that's what's new in what we see with this government. There are calls, including from quite high up in the establishment, for taking to the streets for a civil disruption campaign. It's way too early to know whether that really captures the kind of mass support. Right, and you're right to put it in that context. Perhaps we should mention that from complaints by Arab Israelis, Palestinian Israelis of discrimination, to the reports from Israeli and international human rights organizations like Beit Selem, like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch, they even talk about Israel practicing apartheid. So democracy between two quotation marks. There is some concern about how much democracy. Many in the Israeli system would say the Supreme Court was a guarantor of Israeli impunity internationally. Because one of the things that the Israelis could do in trying to beat back international investigations, especially when it comes to Israel's crimes against the Palestinians, when it comes to saying, hey, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, has no role here. The International Court of Justice has no role here. Why are you guys getting involved? We have a strong, independent judicial system of our own. That was a constant claim being made. Actually, that court system consistently failed to offer redress to Palestinians whose human rights were daily being denied where Israel was violating international law. Now, it kind of takes away the fig leaf. So this isn't going to be what's on the banners of mainstream political establishment folk in Israel. But you do have this argument being made, which is, for heaven's sake, whisper it, but part of getting away with this for so long is we could pretend that there was a legitimate independent judicial system that could oversee what the politicians are doing. Exactly. Maybe we should talk about who makes up this new government, because I imagine for many listeners listening to this, you've got to ask the question then, why would Israel be moving in this direction? We've got to look at the composition of this government, right? We're talking about a collection of far-right, nationalist, ultra-orthodox parties and figures who've come together really for the first time in this way to form the most right-wing government in the country's history, right? I think that definitely helps to shine a light on what's going on here, that you have an Israeli government that's actually quite coherent, quite ideologically cohesive, it runs the gamut from the more secular, hawkish right to the religious, fundamentalist religious, hard 
really kind of neo-fascist, kahanist in Israeli terms, right? Which harks back to a rabbi who moved from the US to Israel, who was actually banned back in the day from running for the Knesset for his own... Mayor Kahana. So that coalition has come together, has divvied up the ministerial portfolios. This very hard right party called Religious Zionism, made up of different factions, including folks who people may now be hearing their names more regularly. This Itamar Ben-Gavir, who made the provocative visit to the Al-Aqsa compound, the Haram al-Sharif Temple Mount. This guy Smotrich, who's the finance minister, who's now withholding monies from the Palestinian Authority. These guys have come to the forefront they secured a staggering amount of seats, really, 14 seats in Parliament, and that doesn't appear to be the ceiling. They're in government with the ultra-Orthodox religious fundamentalists and with Netanyahu's Likud party, and they're not there to tread water. Now, note of caution. It would be wrong to see this exclusively as a break from the past, to exclusively see this through the lens of change. There's also an element of, a significant element, of continuity here. But a ramping up, maybe, Daniel? Is it continuity, but a ramping up? A ramping up, and it's really in your face. It's very transparent, aggressive, unapologetic. They're not hiding behind the, oh, but we're talking to the PA. Oh, but we have security cooperation. Oh, but we'd like to make peace if only if there was a partner. All of that was largely excuses and camouflage for Israel's entrenching of a matrix of control. But these guys, aren't playing that game. And here's a key distinction for folks to understand. In the past, there was an Israeli position which said, we're not gonna come to terms with any of the Palestinian claims or any of this stuff about rights and justice. We will entrench our control, but we will do it while maintaining the pretense of we want peace and we will do it gradually. These guys are coming and saying, yeah, you did okay, but this gradualism isn't working for us anymore. We've won. The Palestinians are essentially vanquished. Now let's take over the whole thing. Let's stop pretending we can deal with the Palestinians. And crucially, what these guys are saying at is, you've done okay territorially, but you failed demographically because the Palestinians are still here on the ground. And as long as the Palestinians are still here on the ground, we've not won that decisive victory. And that's why I think you'll see initiatives like stripping people of their citizenship, initiatives to encourage Palestinian out-migration and more dramatic things. And I think part of the judicial reform is to clear the way, is to remove that judicial obstacle from more dramatic steps. Of course, some of the members of the current government have a history of calling precisely for stuff like that, right? So this isn't coming out of the blue or just a figment of your imagination. No, my imagination doesn't tend to extend that far, Sammy. <laughs> so, yeah, no, this is documented. You actually see a remarkable uptick and a remarkable openness in calling for expulsion. Now, to Palestinian ears, that, wait a minute, this is our history. Dispossession is Palestinian reality, Nakba. We've been here before. And you have Israeli senior officials saying precisely that. It's happened in the past. A lot of people ideologically driven. Is there another element, though, within the government now? The Minister of Security, Itamar Ben-Gavir, well, he was convicted of racism. The Interior Minister, Arya Deri, a criminal conviction for tax offences. The finance minister is on the record for calling for segregation between Jewish 
and Palestinian mothers in maternity wards that some have described as a call for apartheid-style era policies. Is there some common ground here? I would draw the distinction between the ideological, the apartheidist ideological mindset, which speaks to that example you gave of in hospitals, the current finance minister Smotrich and what he said about separating Jewish and Arab-Palestinian mothers. I would draw a distinction between that and corruption, criminality in that sense of the word. On the latter, yes, there are several people who either face charges or have had charges against them in the past. And of course, the core driver to that is that the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is himself in court facing charges which could lead to his imprisonment. So for Netanyahu, there is an overriding necessity to deal with his own legal predicament and to get either the legislation that would give him immunity or a change in people in senior positions that could lead to the dropping of the charges. And there is this network of criminality. But I also don't want to fall into the trap of suggesting it's just about that. Right, it's much bigger than that. Yeah, and there's an ideology here. Driving it. Well, talking about ideology driving it, one of the opening acts of this government was that visit by the Minister of Security to the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. Why? Was this, as you said, is it along the lines of showing the ideological true face of this government? It is. There's a couple of things going on. There's the domestic coupon, which members of the government believe can be clipped to their benefit for being more extreme. They believe there is a constituency out there which has not been maximalized yet, who respond well to what they're calling Jewish assertiveness, Jewish pride. We will Mm. stare down the threats and each time we do something and the Middle East doesn't blow up, we'll be proving that the other side are a paper tiger and that we can go further. And that's an internal dynamic inside the government who pushes harder, etc. There is also an interest on the part of Netanyahu externally to say, I'm the responsible guy here. Come to me, don't pressure me though, or I'll have to, I'll have to let these guys run riot. And he will try and play this in a certain way. And the real driver here is this overwhelming Israeli sense of impunity. The lived experience of Israel is no matter how egregious our actions are towards the Palestinians, we can get away with it. The world may flex its vocal cord muscle. It may up its rhetorical naughty boys, but it doesn't actually hold us accountable. There's no cost and consequence. Therefore, we can get away with anything. And that's the core thing which enables, which facilitates this lurch to ever greater extremism. That's a really good point. But hold that thought for a moment because we're going to have to take a break. We'll be right back, though. This week on The Take, after an unexpected peace agreement, Ethiopia's Tigray begins to reconnect to the world. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everyone. Right, let's get back into it. 
When we talk about getting away with it, specifically in this case, we're talking about changing the status quo agreement. And I wonder if we could take a second and explain to listeners briefly, because I know it's deeply complicated, what is the status quo agreement in the Arxamos compound in East Jerusalem in the holy site there? So Jordan is in control of that space after the end of the British mandate, essentially after the war of 47 to 49. Israel takes control of the site in 67. And the precedent that is established there is that the site of the elevated under the control of the Jordanian religious administration, the Waqf, and prayer rites remain the same. So, in other words, Muslims pray in the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. Of course, Jews pray in the Western Wall, Christians in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, basically. Is that what we're talking about in a nutshell? Essentially, yes. Now, you know, this hasn't been static. There were attempts in the past by Jewish fundamentalists to change that, but it more or less held firm but it's been challenged and challenged. And by the way, important to note that for their own reading of Jewish religious texts, Jewish religious authorities have long held there should be a ban for Jewish religious reasons on Jews to ascend to that site. It's to do with the Ark, the Holy of Holies in the Jewish religion being there and you could set foot on that, which is prescribed in Israeli religious practices. So they have banned Israeli Jews from visiting. I'm glad you mentioned that, Daniel, because a number of Jewish religious figures, like the Sephardic chief rabbi, actually came out and criticized the Israeli security minister, reminding him that Jewish law forbids Jews from stepping foot on that area. So is this really about freedom of worship, as Ben Gavir is trying to portray it? Or is this really about extending occupation over an occupied Palestinian territory? Look, there are groups of Jews who have a different interpretation, who believe this is the holiest place to go and pray, who believe that this is a question of prayer. They also want to bring back things like animal sacrifice. But that's a minority, right, Daniel? Even the Jewish religious figures, they made it very clear when they spoke to Ben Gavir and said, even if you hold to a minority opinion as a representative of the state of Israel, you should represent the majority position and not go up there. What is unmistakable in this effort coming from the Ben Gvir community of these religious Zionists, these particular branch of the nationalist religious movement, is that this is an attempt to assert domination, control, sovereignty, Israel's sovereign presence. This isn't because you could envisage a situation which says, okay, why don't we do a deal? Why don't we recognize Palestinian statehood, Palestinian sovereignty? that this is Palestinian, Western Wall is Jewish, Israeli. And then let's talk about prayer arrangements. That's not what, that this isn't about resolving an issue of freedom of prayer. And of course, one also right. has to recognize that Palestinians don't have freedom of access. Palestinians face draconian regime of restrictions on movement, etc. So this isn't about those things. And many nations have seen this as a provocation, including the Palestinians, of course. One of the most controversial coalition figures 
Itamar Ben-Gavir, previously convicted of inciting racism and supporting a Jewish terrorist group. He's been appointed Minister of National Security, overseeing the national police. Well, the U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price spoke about or warned against actions that exacerbate tensions. What does this mean for Israel's relationship with the U.S. going forward? Will this right-wing government strain that dynamic? I think so far it means very little because what was missing very conspicuously whether it be from what you referred to, Ned Price, the State Department spokesperson, or other U.S. officials, is anything by way of suggesting, well, if Israel does X, then America will respond by doing Y. In other words, actually challenging this impunity, which we have spoken about, which is so key, actually raising the bar, raising the cost, holding Israel accountable. And what you have had subsequent to the Ben Gavir visit is news that Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, will be visiting Israel in the course of January. And in setting out his agenda, he made sure to put item number one on the agenda, the importance of the bilateral relationship, how strong the ties are, the shared values, all the things that we've always heard through years and years of Israel violating the very same international laws and norms and standards which America is holding up as the reason for everything that is being done vis-a-vis Ukraine at the moment. So we have the Americans doubling down on their commitment to Israel. You will also have the announcement that Blinken will be visiting. So no, I do not think that Israel is now facing the kinds of challenges the being held accountable, which it historically has not faced. And in that respect, you will hear in the Israeli media, perhaps in the international media also, claims that this is really going to damage Israel. But unless and until there is real pressure brought to bear on the US administration by its own constituents, then I think the double standard and the impunity will continue to prevail. All right, Daniel, let me jump in and play devil's advocate because, as you know, supporters of the Israeli government would say, hey, they're enjoying impunity. They're fighting lawlessness. Palestinian attacks and knife attacks have increased and they need to find a new way, they say, to deal with security challenges. Except they're not really saying that, are they? They're calling legitimate, non-violent Palestinian appeals that the United Nations General Assembly to the International Court of Justice, they call that diplomatic terrorism. They call non-violent Palestinian protests attempts to undermine and bring an end to Israel's existence. They call legitimate calls for boycotting, divesting from and sanctioning Israel economic terrorism. In fact, they go further and they call that anti-Semitism. So this isn't about Israeli security. No country can have security when it is denying the basic rights of another people, when it is itself in violation of international law. The permanent denial of the most basic freedoms and rights to Palestinians is not a legitimate response to a security concern, nor is it an effective security strategy. All right. Getting back to then, and this ties in nicely with where the conversation's going, the US dynamic. We did see under the Trump administration 
a further, can we call it, hollowing out of the context of occupation and how the US under the Trump administration tries to address peace efforts between Israelis and Palestinians or between the wider Arab world and the Israelis. The Trump administration may be outside of the White House, but are we seeing right-wing Israeli and US ideological forces continuing to converge? I would say yes, extreme right forces in Israel and the US. There is an ideological convergence. The, the US one is particularly interesting because I think part of the ideological convergence is disruptive and, and counter-establishment culture. But there's another aspect to this, which is for part of the white nationalist Christian right in America, Israel is the model, a Jewish state unashamedly placing Jewish, placing an ethno-nationalist religious identity over democratic is the model for white nationalist America. And they see Zionism as practiced in the actual existing state of Israel of a supremacist regime. They see this as the model for an America in which white America feels it is losing the reins of dominance and power, and this is a phenomenon we see in parts of Europe, especially in Western cultural discourse. Israel plays this game of conferring legitimacy on anti-Semitic nationalists because if you're pro-Israel, it's okay. It doesn't matter really what your position is towards collective Jewish security. So Israel will very unashamedly, very problematically conflate what is legitimate criticism of itself with the accusation of anti-Semitism, and it plays that anti-Semitism card to very strong effect in many different spaces today. And, and that's something else that we're seeing as part of this convergence. Is this government going to last, or are some of the forces that are not happy with this sort of model going to find a way to bring it down and end it? They do not. Just the narrow longevity of this government feels like having taken so many election cycles to have a decisive outcome, it would be rather surprising if the coherent coalition of the majority volunteers political suicide in the short term. But they're extremists. They may well play a game of brinksmanship and find themselves losing power. They've worked before in government and in opposition and there's been an ability to dovetail a more religiously ultra-Orthodox vision of the so-called Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox factions, with the religious Zionism, which is slikely different, and with the nationalism. Likud was historically a secular nationalist party. It's less that today. There are far more similarities. So I think they can hold together. One thing, maybe this government does prematurely collapse. But it's a whole nother question whether there's actually an alternative that steps into the breach and offers a different kind of policy. Now they've just continued it with even the Palestinian Authority being subjected to punitive measures. And that's the real challenge. Will we have a different narrative beginning to gain greater traction in Israeli society that connects the dots? Because the reason underpinning why this government is going after some of this kind of democratic hardware of the Israeli system that 
certain liberal Jewish Israelis who have turned a blind eye to crimes and misdemeanors against Palestinians, but they're suddenly rather animated. But the reason underpinning why this is happening is precisely the preservation of this discriminatory ethno-nationalist system of supremacy designed to dispossess the Palestinians. The question is whether you begin to see a shift that really questions the regime fundamentals that you haven't seen in the past, but that would mark the kind of qualitative shift in understanding what is needed that we have not heretofore seen, but perhaps the extremities of this government is an opportunity to revisit that. Daniel, it's always fabulous talking to you. Thank you so much for this chat. Real pleasure. And thank you for listening, guys. This episode was produced by our interns, Riyama Jafari and Neda Shakir. Sound design was by George Elwir. Our engagement producer is Ayel Malik, and assistant engagement producer is Munira Dosari. Our executive producer is Omar Saleh, and Ney Alvarez is our head of audio. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. For now, it's goodbye.